Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. My name is Ben Craven and today we're joined by our Executive Director Oliver Hartwich and our Senior Economist Matt Burgess. Hi both. Hi Ben. Hi Ben. Inflation has hit 5.9%. That's the highest it's been in more than three decades. It's the highest it's been in my lifetime in fact. What are the main, uh, what are the main forces behind this high rise in inflation? I think none of this is unexpected. We've been saying that inflation is on the horizon for quite a while, and we've been saying it because for a long time the Reserve Bank has actually implemented very loose monetary policies, even going back to the time before the pandemic, if we can still remember that. We had near zero interest rates before COVID-19 happened, and even before COVID happened, the Reserve Bank governor was already talking about the possibility of negative interest rates. Why did he do that? Because... He's been given a new mandate from the government, not just to look after price stability, but also to make sure that we'll get full employment. And he took that as a justification for a very loose approach to monetary policy before COVID-19 and when COVID-19 happened. He actually supplemented that with quantitative easing, gave himself up to $100 billion of QE, and then stopped halfway through because he could already see that he was building up inflation pressures, which at the time showed mainly in the property market and asset prices. But now we actually see this reflected in consumer prices. None of this is a surprise. We've been very critical of this from the beginning. And we've also criticized the Reserve Bank, of course, for not just taking their eyes off inflation, but also for being totally distracted by all sorts of sideshows. I mean, issues such as indigenous affairs, or climate change or diversity, they are all important in their own right, but they are not the Reserve Bank's core business. And unfortunately, despite an increase of more than 140 full-time equivalent staff, the Reserve Bank has not paid attention to its core business over the past three years. You can also see it in their research output. I mean, even the Central Bank of Iceland has produced more research reports in the last few years than our own Reserve Bank of New Zealand. That tells you something. So the Reserve Bank has failed at its job and unfortunately lost its credibility. And now it will face a really, really tough task of bringing back inflation expectations because otherwise, once they're baked in, they will spiral out of control. Right. So the, the Reserve Bank has obviously taken its eye off the ball. Um, does that mean the government's not to blame? The government is to blame because the government has given the Reserve Bank the dual mandate of um, also taking care of employment. So they've given the Reserve Bank that task, they've given the Reserve Bank that cover, and of course the Reserve Bank then effectively did the government's job in the pandemic of keeping the New Zealand economy alive and did their job a little bit too well by actually overstimulating everything. So the government has to take some of the blame itself. And the, the problem with the dual mandate that the Reserve Bank now has is that it makes it, it's going to make it harder to fight inflation. Ultimately, you fight inflation by raising interest rates. That hurts the economy. That's actually the way it works. Uh, the dual mandate is going to, uh, depending on how much weight the Reserve Bank decides to put on the balance between price stability versus the economy, uh, is going to make the Reserve Bank uh, too reluctant to raise interest rates to fight inflation. So, you know, we're at 5.9%, highest in 30 years. You know, last time we were here, Richard Harmon this morning in Politic pointed out that the last time inflation was this high, um, the Reserve Bank ended up raising interest rates to between 12 and 14%. Now think about, you know, that's bad enough in 1990 when you've got house prices, you know, um, only a fraction of what they are today. The average Auckland house price today is $1.7 million. If you're sitting uh, in a $1.7 million Auckland home, you've got a million dollar uh, mortgage, um, every 1% rise in the interest rate is $200 a week for you. Well, 
if you've got to go anything like um, a decent share of the way uh, towards 12 to 14% like we saw 30 years ago, you're going to be putting households underwater. So um, when you look at overseas, uh, Europe, United States, uh, England, you know, you can see that public debt is going to act as a real constraint on the ability of their central banks to fight inflation by raising interest rates, um, because if they do, the heavy debt load that those countries have is going to threaten government budgets. Here, our problem is not public debt, it's house prices. And uh, the Reserve Bank is going to soon face a dilemma between its objective to fight inflation by raising interest rates versus how many uh, households it puts underwater uh, as a result. And I think that's going to be a real tension. And I think the end result is that the Reserve Bank here may struggle to uh, actually put a lid on inflation. Inflation could be here to stay for a while. What's your expectation? Will it increase quite a bit or is it too early to say? Well, the Reserve Bank's told us that um, over the next three years, it expects uh, the official cash rate, I think, to go to 3%. Actually, I should probably check that. But I think I think what they've said in their forecast is over the next three years, we go from uh, 0.25%, which is where they started, up to 3%. So that's about a 2.5% um, increase. And, you know, but it's a forecast. So who knows? Right. Coming back to government policies, what should they be doing to uh, put the inflation genie back in the bottle? Well, there are a few drivers, of course, of inflation pressures, and some of them are coming from overseas. That's what the government likes to tell us. Nothing to do with us. We're just um, basically following international developments. That's partially true, but there are, of course, some drivers uh, domestically. There's domestic monetary policy. We've talked about the Reserve Bank. We've already talked about that they probably overstimulated the economy, not least because of the dual mandate. And then, of course, there are fiscal pressures on price stability as well. So when the government overspends, that adds extra inflation pressures and the government probably has to get its house in order fiscally, but unfortunately they're doing the opposite. So what are some examples of this? What, what's the government doing that is contributing to inflation? What should they be looking to potentially cut? Well, um, it, it's not just what they should cut, it's just things that they sh- simply shouldn't even start. Right. I mean, look at today's announcement of Auckland Light Rail. That's more than $14 billion of spending, $8,000 per household, at a time when we have really high inflation rates, at a time also when we have really shortages in construction. So we have a constraint, a supply constraint in construction at the same time that the government wants to do a massive project. While it still wants to get other stuff built, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's actually increasing the supply constraints in construction at the same time that it also pushes up inflation even higher. It is a complete madness to do this kind of project when the government should really be consolidating its finances. Yeah, so you've got a basic incoherence here, which is you've got real constraints on the economy, uh, and then you've got the government coming in and, and lumping ten, you know, more than $10 billion of new spending um, on a constrained economy. Well, what's the one possible result um, of that if nothing else changes? It's you're going to see more inflation. You've got a constrained real economy. You've got more impulse coming from the government. Um, more dollars chasing a uh, constrained number of real resources uh, can only give you more inflation. So it's just the absolute wrong time to be um, announcing huge new trams through the middle of our larger city. And that's before we even start talking about cost-benefit. Yeah, so you've got a basic lack of discipline and spending right across government. Um, you've got an incoherent policy, which is introducing new spending without making the connection back or any kind of link to trying to resolve the real constraints on the economy through migration, supply chain issues and so on. Not all of it's in New Zealand's control, um, but some of it is, and there just doesn't seem to be any connection in the government's mind between new spending and trying to actually unblock uh, the blockages as far as we can to make it happen. So um, there just seems to be this 
constant inability in the government to, you know, make the connections between um, actually delivering policy and removing the blockages that could stand in the way. This government's approach, and in fact I remember them in opposition, has always been, you know, for any problem, write a cheque. It's just a question of, of throwing more money at to make problems go away. Uh, and surely in year five of this government, they should have figured out by now that actually that doesn't, uh, that can work. Uh, very often it doesn't. And I'd say on a $14 billion tram through Auckland in the current circumstances, not going to happen. And actually, sometimes the solution is, of course, not writing a check, but just getting rid of government blockages. The That's biggest right. one of which currently is the border. Mm. So we had um, education and tourism as two of our biggest export earning sectors. Well, <laughs> They are gone. Uh, they, they can't actually function properly with the border closed. So one of the priorities would be to open the border and to try to revive these sectors by just getting that obstacle away. I mean, it will take years, of course, until the students come back because they've since found other destinations. And the same is true for tourism. But the sooner we start letting these sectors recover, the better. And ministers, you know, good government is knowing the difference, knowing when the constraint is money versus when the constraint is in the detail and the machinery of governments and and. That solving that requires ministers to roll up their sleeves and do the hard yards and dive into the detail and do a lot of unrewarding work to, behind the scenes, um, remove the constraints. Well, you know, there's just no sign of that. And I, I think also the government is slowly running out of political capital to do all of this stuff. I mean, you look at the opinion pool we got um, last night on One News, and um, for me, one of the most interesting findings of that poll was really the discrepancy between the Prime Minister's popularity and her party's polling. So we had Labour at 40%, we had Jacinda Ardern at 35% in the preferred Prime Minister's poll. Well, assuming that there are some Greens voters who probably also have her as preferred Prime Minister, it means that at least one in eight Labour voters, probably more, want a different Prime Minister and not Jacinda Ardern anymore. When that happens, when there is such a big discrepancy between the party's share of the vote and their leader's popularity, you can see that that government and that party is in trouble. And we're in year five of this government. So, you know, as I said in our podcast yesterday, Ben, you know, there's also a question of running out of runway uh, on mega projects. Um, it's increasingly difficult to do big things in this country, planning legislation and all the complexity that's um, multiplied, not just here, but in every country around the world. Um, you know, this is year five of this government. Uh, this is a mega project that they've announced at this tram in Auckland. They've got another mega project in Otago with Lake Onslow. Uh, and on both of those, they're pretty much still at the starting line uh, and I don't think that, uh, well, either two or five years is enough for either of those projects to reach the point of no return, which would stop um, uh, a future government from uh, changing a position on each of those things. So, you know, I'm not sure I really believe that the Auckland Tram's ever going to happen. And that's probably good because it looks like a dog. The problem is, of course, that the government knows that they're running out of time, so they might be tempted to rush things. So they would have special legislation, special permissions to just ram things through and then we'll get projects that are probably even more poorly constructed than the ones um, that we typically get from them. I think it's interesting too that they're announcing this on a Friday. Yes. You know, it's bad yeah, news yeah. on, bad news comes out on Fridays under this government quite consistently, actually. Isn't this a good news story for the government? You'd think so, right? Tram through Auckland, $14 billion. Isn't this the kind of thing their voters love? Well, I think they also announced the um, cycle bridge, of course, on a Friday, and that didn't happen. I mean, on the um, light rail project, of course, you could finance 14 cycle bridges. Um, yeah, that bridge certainly looks um, pretty attractive by comparison, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So, I mean, you're right. It might not happen after all. And in fact, they promised something similar, of course, in 2017. 
that didn't happen because of New Zealand first. Now they are in the second stage of planning this light rail project for Auckland, and it might have the same fate as the first one. Yeah, I think there's just a real machinery of government thing here that's going to take a while to fix. And I think you've got to realise that uh, you're asking, I think this government still hasn't quite got to the point of realising that it's asking the public service to do things that it's really not equipped to do. Uh, there's just deep legal process engineering logistics type issues that these mega projects raise that um, I'm not sure the public service has the capability to deliver. And I think uh, if you know future government wants to do big things, whatever they are, there is just a basic question of whether uh, the public service has the skills within it at the moment to actually be able to put the pieces together and make things happen um, anything like a timely way. So, you know, if those, you know, it's one of the things I noticed when I was in the Beehive actually is just Treasury was really good at cranking the handle on existing processes. Treasury was outstanding in the budget process. They really got their sums right. But if you ask them to change anything about that process or, God forbid, build a new process from scratch on anything, uh, we just kept getting met with walls of blank faces, just people who just hadn't thought about that kind of problem before. Highly competent people, smart people, of course, but just not with those skill sets. And nobody in the building, apparently, who did have them. So this is a real how to elect a government's get things done type issue, and it's not going to be resolved. It's, you know, A great way not to resolve it is to um, lump a $14 billion tram through Auckland on them and ask them to do what is effectively impossible. At the same time, of course, ministers will realise that, of course, all of their big projects don't really work the way they had intended them to work. And the danger, I think, is that at some stage, cabinet will come to the conclusion that it's now worth going full Muldoon just to get stuff done, because so far they've been frustrated by their inability to really affect any change, any positive change. So I think um, that's basically what Bryce Wilkinson argued in the Herald this week in a really good column, which I urge you to read. Um, explaining that we are really going back to the times of Muldoon with this kind of ad hocery, with um, this government's megalomania, with this hubris about their own ability to implement any um, policy projects. I, I think there is a real danger that this government, out of sheer frustration of not getting anything done, might now actually do even more and do even more damage in the long run. And I think that's right. I think what you saw, you know, I was really quite disturbed by this week's um, you know discovery that those rapid antigen tests had been seized by the government. And I think what disturbed me was not just the seizure, it's the fact that it occurred in what looked like pretty benign circumstances. That was not, you can imagine desperate circumstances in a pandemic that really does require you to seize things. That's not the position we were in, and yet the government went ahead anyway. So this government really does, between oil and gas, between seizing um, rapid antigen tests and possibly other things, um, this government is no respecter of due process, doesn't understand the value of property rights, doesn't understand what drives growth, thinks about the short term and the next press release without apparently putting any weight on the longer term consequences. This government has a track record that tells you that they're going to do whatever it takes to punch holes in any legislation or norms or anything else um, to get this tram done. I still don't think they'll do it because those norms and processes actually help you deliver big complicated things. The government doesn't understand that. And with the best intent, best in the sense of delivering the things that they want to deliver, um, they're going to punch holes in things that actually they need to deliver this tram, to deliver this project in, in Otago. Um, and they'll find that out of nowhere comes uh, delays, extra costs, and no real progress. Actually, that's one another thing that we learned in our time in government, um, in national. Every time you tried to shortcut a project and fast-track a project in the Christchurch recovery, that was the surest way to make it take longer. You just... 
it seems so simple. You know, you just shortcut processes. You, but it just creates friction in ways that you can never see coming. But it happened every time. It's interesting, actually, by the way, that um, it took us that long in our conversation to even touch on COVID uh, when you mentioned rapid antigen tests, because that's, of course, the other big nightmare and worry for the government with Omicron. And again, I think it just shows the same lack of preparedness. I mean, Matthew Houghton's column today in the Herald was fantastic in that regard, because he just detailed and chronicled, basically, all the steps along the way where the government didn't prepare and then told us they had a, inverted quotes, plan. Well, it wasn't really a plan. The government is driven by events. It's basically taking its eyes off the ball. And it went on holiday over the summer, which is understandable, of course, after a horrific year for anyone, including the government, but simply not appropriate when you're dealing with a massive crisis. So I think none of this will play out well for the government politically, not even in the short run and certainly not in the long run. And actually, if you look at the opinion poll last night, I think it's 50-50 for next year's election. Yeah, the question is whether 18 months is long enough for enough of the awful outcomes that the current approach is going to deliver. You know, is 18 months long enough for those outcomes to be revealed to the middle voter? Um, yeah, 50-50, I'd say. I think we shouldn't underestimate the damage any government could do in such a short space of time. Even 18 months is enough time to really create a lot of damage that it will take years to clean it up. And I just think, you know, imagine... You know, can this economy really take five more years of this government? Could the economy have taken three more years of Muldoon? Uh, I, th- that's, I think we're getting into that sort of territory. Not just there yet. Muldoon took it all the way to the crisis point. We're not there yet, but that's where it will end up uh, on the current trajectory. And by the way, amazing also that uh, we managed to have a conversation for 15 minutes with Matt without even mentioning carbon budgets. <laughs> Because that's another thing that this government will institute this year, which will keep us busy and which will be extremely expensive for years to come. So actually, there is no end to the policy madness at the moment, and we'll have to be really careful that we're not wrecking the New Zealand economy for the next decade. Right, and it's all consumers that will be feeling it in their back pockets. Um, Presumably, that's going to inhibit a lot of spending, a lot of economic activity. People will start to feel the pinch. Not immediately, though. You know, all that money printing and all that fiscal impulse is going to make feel pr- people feel pretty good in the short term, even with 6% inflation. Um, they're not going to feel so good at 10% inflation. Uh, they're not going to feel so good at 5% or 7 or 8% mortgage rates. They will not feel good when they're paying $4 at the pump. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's, we're not there yet. But that has to be where we end up on the current trajectory, just a question of how soon. Right, Oliver Hartwich and Matt Burgess, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. To stay up to date with our latest research, opinions and events, sign up to our weekly insights newsletter at nzinitiative.org.nz.